0: The greatest unresolved problem confronting the contemporary church is the unemployment problem. There are too many drones in the divine hive. I tell my students at the seminary, there are only two groups of people in your church, gentlemen. The pillars who support it and the caterpillars who crawl in and out week after week who occupy 18 inches, more or less, on a pew, shake your hand with a pious wine and say, Pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. We'll see you next week. And they seldom come closer to the truth. They are checking it to you. Now, it is inconceivable to me that God should call the church into existence and that that church should languish for lack of leadership. And yet, wherever I go, across America or around the world, the screaming need is for leaders. I know very few churches or Christian organizations that can afford to hang a sign out their front door, No Help Wanted. God is still in the business of dispensing gifts. Ephesians 4 makes that transparently clear. God gives gifts to men and gifted men to the church. But while God is still in the process of dispensing gifts, we are not in the process of developing gifts my judgment there are two basic steps in the process of making disciple and i'd like to summarize them for you tonight with these two statements your first task in making disciples is to determine what you want to develop You see, objectives always determine outcome. It's very important to have clearly in mind, right at the outset of any undertaking, where are you going? It was Aristotle who said, like archers, we shall stand a far greater chance of hitting the target if we can see it. (laughs) That's profound. That's what made him Aristotle. The reason why we often feel we are doing so good is that we really don't know what we're doing. Once you have determined what it is you want to develop, then your second task is to develop what you have determined. The first of these deals with the product. The second, with the process. Now, just briefly tonight, I would like to share with you what it is we ought to be developing in the realm of making disciples. People often ask me, what are you looking for in your disciple?" I'm looking for three things, each of which begins with a C. First of all, I am looking for a committed individual. That is to say, a person who has made certain basic spiritual decisions. He has unreserved commitment to Jesus Christ. He has unreserved commitment to the body of Christ. It's not sufficient to commit yourself to the Savior without committing yourself to the saints. Because once you receive Christ as Savior, you are baptized into a body and you assume unlimited liability for other members in that body that God brings into your experience. There's no such thing as an independent Christian. Each of us is interdependent. I need you. You need me. We need each other. And I believe in our day, we need a greater emphasis upon the body of Christ. Thirdly, we need unreserved commitment to the ministry of God in the world. You see, God didn't place you on this planet to redeem you simply to provide an insurance policy to keep you out of hell. He saved you in order to make you like his son, who so loved the world that he gave his son. Someone asked Mr. Armour some years ago, What's your business? Well, they said, my chief business is to be a witness for Jesus Christ, and I pack meat on the side to make a living. You ever ask yourself, what are you doing on the side to make a living? See, your primary purpose as a believer, complete in Jesus Christ, allowed to remain here on this planet for a little slice of time is to make an impact with that redeemed life upon this world the second thing I am looking for is a competent individual and I want to define that because I mean by that First of all, a person who knows something. You cannot communicate out of a vacuum. You cannot impart what you do not possess. Your first responsibility is to know something in order to develop your competency. But secondly, he is a person who feels something. He is not merely passive about the truth he has learned. He's most excited about it. Thirdly, I'm talking about a competent person as a person who does something. He knows, he feels, he does. The truth of God's word embraces in it his intellect, his emotions, and his will. All captivated by the fact that God has spoken and he has not stuttered. Confident individual is a person who knows something fully, who feels something deeply, and who behaves something consistently. And it's out of the overflow of that full life that he has with which to minister to others. Third thing I'm looking for, and it's higher on my priority list than it's ever been before, particularly in this generation. I'm looking for a person who is creative, for someone who is not set in concrete, who is not packaged, You cannot develop a person without giving to that individual a sphere of freedom. That individual has a personality. That individual has spiritual gifts with which to function in the body. And you want to greatly to respect that personality and those gifts. Don't play the Holy Spirit. For your disciples. That's devastating. I'm looking for somebody who's able to think, not simply rearranges prejudices. I'm looking for somebody who can dream, who is convinced that it all hasn't happened. I'm looking for somebody who can believe God for his specialty, the impossible. I'm looking for somebody who's flexible, who knows what needs to be changed and what should not be changed. I say, I'm looking for people who are committed, competent, and creative. And I hear somebody on the fourth row asking, are you finding them? no i'm not in fact i don't expect to find them you can't find them but you can develop them but you can never develop committed competent creative disciple unless these are your goal you achieve that for which you aim now it's the second of these that i would like to spend the rest of our time on first you determine what you want to develop draw up your own list of specifications Secondly, develop what you have determined. And this is where I would recommend an intensified study of the Gospels. Jesus Christ developed His disciple. We looked at that group of individuals and concluded that we would not have been spiritually perceptive enough to have handpicked that crop. Despite the fact that the pagan world testified, these are they that have turned the world upside down. How did Jesus Christ go about developing such distinctiveness in his disciples? Well, let me suggest four ways tonight, as time allows. Four ways that are open to you. There's no one, no one, who cannot employ each of these four ways in building into the life of your disciples. Number one, Jesus Christ developed his disciples by example. They observed him for three and a half years and up close in every conceivable type of situation in crises. By the way, crises always reveal character. The crisis does not make you that kind of an individual, it reveals that you are that kind of an individual. At the outset of our study, we said a disciple is a learner, he's a follower. And there has to be some congruence between that which a person learns from you and that which they see in your life. And if what they see in your life is totally incompatible with what you tell them, then no matter how accurate, how biblical, how necessary is what you tell them, you really do not communicate. You see, what Christ was to his disciples was far more important than what he said. As you trace through the Gospels, you discover half the time they forgot what he said. They couldn't even remember the most elementary things that he said. And he had to repeat over and over and over again. And they still had a hard time getting the picture. But they never forgot what he was. His words were validated by his life. His life had an authentic quality. Our kids would say, he was for real. Now, in Luke chapter 6, the last part of verse 40, you have a remarkable statement. Jesus said, Everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. How's that grab you? You are going to reproduce in kind. You like what you are? That's what you're going to produce. See, and your greatest problem is not your disciple. Your greatest problem is your own life. I can still remember coming up as a parent, and I used to pray, Lord, change my children. And nothing happened. Until one day it dawned on me I was praying the wrong prayer. And I began to pray, Lord, change my children's father. And my friends, to the extent that Jesus Christ began to change my life, I began to see the most divine and obviously supernatural changes in the life of my children. You want to change your disciples? Ask God to change you. Because they're going to be just like you. After they have been fully trained. There's a basic principle in education which I communicate frequently to my students. Namely, teachers teach as they were taught. It amuses me. Students sit in classes in seminary and gripe and complain and are finally graduated and go teach in another institution and I show up on the scene and the students are griping and complaining about the teacher who was graduated from our seminary, who griped and complained about the very same things. Isn't that amazing? Disciples disciple the way they were discipled. Will you turn in your Bibles for just a moment to Matthew chapter 20? Matthew chapter 20. I want you to look at the paragraph that begins at verse 20, goes through verse 28. This paragraph opens with an ambitious mother in action. She's got designs for her boys. They're going to be at the top of the totem pole. One on the right hand, one on the left hand of Jesus. And when the question is asked, this ticks off the other ten disciples. Verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation. Why? Because they hadn't thought of asking that. But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but not so among you. That's a very emphatic construction. That's how they lead. But I'm calling you to an altogether different lifestyle. Whosoever would become great among you shall be your minister. Please note, he never scores any individual for desiring to be great. He just says, make sure you know the path to true greatness. It's through ministry, becoming a slave. And whosoever would be first among you shall be your servant. He never reamed anybody out for wanting to be first. Jesus Christ never encouraged a loser's theology. Don't ever let anybody cram that down your throat. He just said, you want to be first? Guaranteed way. Get at the end of the line. Be last. Let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life ransom for many there's the truth that's what he taught him but did he provide an example turn over to John 13 immediately preceding context the disciples are on their way to the upper room they're having what to them is a fascinating conversation namely who's going to be top dog in the coming kingdom and one of them's got his eye on a secretary of state the other guys nailed down the secretary of Treasury in fact they all had delusions of grandeur so they walk by the door none of them is going to take the place of the most menial servant to wash the disciples feet after all if I'm secretary of state there's somebody further down a totem pole than I am with the result that nobody stoops to take the place of the servant until our Lord takes a basin and pours water in it and places a towel around him and proceeds to wash The disciples' feet. And you remember Peter's protest, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. No way. Jesus says, Look, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Well, if that's the case, Lord, give me the complete treatment. (laughs) You'll have to look at the translation. Now, look at verse 13. Here's the application. You call me teacher and Lord and you say well that's accurate for so I am. If I then the Lord and the teacher have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. the last time You washed another brother's feet as a slave. Not with scalding water. Because we have a lot of what I call self-appointed fruit inspectors in the body. We're constantly running around lifting up people's leaves. How's your fruit? since nobody's talking about here I had a beautiful experience earlier this summer I was ministering at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington we had an early morning meeting a breakfast 6.30 in the morning and I think I mentioned to you on another occasion that Senator Hatfield was there here's The highest ranking member on the Rules Committee in the Senate, who has a committee meeting at 8.30, and at 6.30, he's meeting with a group of men for prayer and study of the Word. And at 7.30, when it was disbanded and everyone else had left, Senator Hatfield is stacking chairs over in the corner. And I said to my friend Dick Halverson, that's beautiful. He said, Howie, I don't need to tell you that the pedestals are empty for young people and particularly in the realm of politics. But Senator Hatfield has provided the most brilliant example of servanthood than we have ever seen in this church. And one of the things I hesitate to even share this with you except to instruct you, but one of the things that's hardest to choke down in Christian service is the bucking for position, the jockeying for the top rung and the ladder. My friend, you'll never produce disciples with that kind of a mentality. Here's the Lord of Glory washing the disciples' feet. Jot down Philippians 4:9. That which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul said, do. He provided an audiovisual in his life. Now, please note, there is one significant difference between you and your disciples and Jesus and His. And it's this. Make sure you share your failures with your disciples. Jesus never did because he never failed. But that's not true of you. That's certainly not true of me. A year ago I handed out some evaluation sheets to some of my students and I said, man... I really need some help. I don't want you to tell me what I want to hear. I want you to tell me what I need to hear. Give me some constructive suggestions for this course. What is it that really grabbed you and turned you on and motivated you and made it worthwhile taking the course? You know what intrigued me? 67% of the students who turned in those evaluations concurred. One of the greatest contributions, Prof, of this course was that you shared with us your failures. Because we tend to think of you in terms of what you are now rather than in terms of what you were then. Seeing it's so easy, you know, to progress in your spiritual life and get way down here and forget what it was like down here. And you're always reaming this guy out. Get with it, Dad! You know, and if he knew enough, he'd say, Well, how long did it take you to get with it? Oh, 12 years. Well, I've been less than 12 months en route. Relax. <laughs> your disciples, my friends, will forgive you for your failures. In fact, they may even identify with you as real. But they will not forgive you for your dishonesty. second way that Jesus Christ developed his men is by problems. Now we run from these. We're scared to death of these. We just can't stand hanging a person up. But Jesus involved his disciples in the realities of life. In my judgment, Christian education is entirely too passive. We produce too many spectators rather than people who are deeply involved in the process. Jesus Christ trained his disciples while involved in the battle, not by removing them from the battle. A few years ago when I was ministering here at the Glen A dear brother who was teaching at the Air Force Academy took me through the academy. And I had the privilege of meeting a gentleman who was the head of the mathematics department at the academy. And being in the field of education myself, I was interested in their philosophy of education as an institution. And I said to him, sir, how many faculty members do you have in your department? And as I recall, he said, 68. I said, you have 68 members in your mathematics department he said that's right I said what what is the tenure he said well we determine this apart from heads of departments and certain individuals we will only allow a person to teach in this institution for five years and then he must return to active military duty I said why is that he said because we regard this as an infection station And we find that a man removed more than five years from the reality of military life is no longer infectious. He's talking more about what he used to do than about what he is doing. And I think that's what I have appreciated most in my intimate association with this outfit. That some of the men who are at the top of this organization and who constitute its leadership and its heart and its vision are men who unashamedly continue to share Jesus Christ and get a ministry with some people in this community or wherever God places them. And that's the genius of an effective ministry for Jesus Christ. Tension is essential to growth. That's why God gives you problems. That's why James says, count it all joy. When? Not if you fall into trouble, but when. And if you don't have any trouble now, be patient. It's on its way. Because difficulty is the chisel that shapes your soul. Now, will you turn to the gospel by Mark, to a passage you have never seen before in Mark 4? You knew I had something sneaky in mind, didn't you? Now, I know that you have seen all of this, so I won't take a lot of time to deal with the obvious. But in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 34... You have a series of lectures by the world's greatest teacher. They are lectures on faith. Over and over again he says, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. I can still remember the first time I read that. I said to myself, you got to be kidding. What else do you do with ears? <laughs> Collect wax. you have a nine-year-old child, you know he has ears that do not hear, (laughs) except the right things. But you see, Jesus Christ was a good teacher. He knew that you could not communicate faith by a series of lectures, even given by the greatest of teachers. The teacher come from God. So he puts them into a laboratory. beginning at chapter 4 and verse 35, going through chapter 5 and verse 44. And he gives the disciples a test, a hearing test, right at the beginning of this laboratory. So he did not give tests like we do at the seminary. We give tests to see how much a student can gram in his bean. And then he regurgitates, you know, and we grade him. I had to communicate with a student some time ago and I found him walking like a zombie down the hall and they came up to talk to me. Don't touch me, prof. I'll leak everything I know. <laughs> He's on his way to an examination. <laughs> Jesus Christ couldn't care less that they could repeat all of the words that he had said back to them so a little conviction going over here he said verse 35 the first part of that paragraph you did study that didn't you gentlemen let's go to the other side roger so out they go And then Mark tells you, not only is the boat in the water where it belongs, but the water is in the boat where it doesn't belong. And this group of professional fishermen come and say, Lord, don't you even care? We're in the process of perishing. The implication is, at least you can help to bail out. Now, who said that? Not a group of seminary students. A group of men who spent all of their life on this lake. They'd seen many storms. You can see them if you go there. You've got something 600 and some feet below sea level. You've got mountains to the west with strong downdrafts. And you can take the Sea of Galilee and whip that thing into a tempestuous sea in a matter of five minutes. And they had experienced that. It was a common phenomenon, but they had never seen one like this. So the Lord gets up and rebukes the wind, the wave, no problem there. (laughs) Then he turns to the disciples and says, how is it that you, that's emphatic, of all people have no faith? Who? Why, the men who had just heard the lectures on faith. They wrote a blue book. (laughs) And it came up with a big fat F on it. And that wasn't for faith. Jesus said, let's go to the other side, not let's go to the middle of the lake and drown. But you see, they flunked the hearing test. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. If Jesus says, we're going to the other side, Mac, we're going to the other side. You've reached the end of side A. Please turn the cassette over for the beginning of side B. Now, have you ever asked yourself, what are you doing to develop the faith of your disciples? That's a critical commodity. Well, I'm glad you asked, Brother Hennox, because I just got a good set of notes. In fact, I'll be glad to share them with you. We get them in the room, you know it all out that's not where you learn we had a guy in our community i'm sorry he's no longer there professor at southwestern i'm sorry at southern methodist school of law dr charmitz by name remarkable individual wish he were a believer he's such a phenomenal trainer of men that i used to send my students out to see him in action I'd say, you go out and see Charmantz in action, you'll never be the same. Charmantz taught trial law. And he would set the classroom up like a courtroom scene. And everybody would be in the act. He'd have the prosecution, the defense. He'd have one guy as the judge. He'd have the rest of them in the jury. Everybody was in the act. He'd sit in the back smoking a cigar. You were convinced the guy was out like a light. He heard every single thing that went on. They try the case, and after they get through, I can still remember him come storming down the center of that aisle saying, Good night. You don't mean to tell me you're going to try that case like that, are you? You know what I do in that shoddy prosecution? This is what I do. <sighs> Nothing left. You know, the fence Oh, boy, did we ever cool this one. <laughs> and he whip around. You know what I would do in that lousy defense? This is what I do. <sighs> Nothing left. The only secure guy is the judge. <laughs> And you take a drag on that cigar and say, Hey, man, you want to know how to win that case? Follow me. And like the Pied Piper, they'd take off. I used to say to people, If you're looking for charmers, Look for a guy with about eight or ten guys following him. If you see him, that's the guy. And he'd go over to the to lawyer's inn, Sit down with a Coke or a cup of coffee, And he'd say, Okay, man, let me show you how to win this. This guy has produced more winners in the state of Texas Than any five professors in all of our law schools put together. One day I went out to see him. I said, Dr. Charmantz, I really appreciate you allowing me to send my students out. That's okay, Hendricks. He said, we need some theologues out here to bail us out occasionally. (laughs) I said, Dr. Charmantz, what's your educational philosophy? Is that educational philosophy? I don't know what in the world you're talking about. He said, I have only one principle. I'd rather have our students lose in here and win out there rather than win in here and lose out there. Our seminary lawyer was trained by Charmitz. I said to him one day, Hey Bill, what was it like to be in Charmitz's class? He said, Hendricks, everything in real life after Charmitz is downhill. <laughs> he said, I've never experienced anything in real life comparison to the trauma of those hours. <laughs> you know what our problem is in most of our churches? I'll tell you, we're winning in the church and losing like crazy outside. May I give you just a little sequence that I have found very helpful in terms of my own ministry? Keep these in balance. It'll save you a lot of trouble. There are two things that people need for growth in the spiritual realm. One is food. The other is exercise. Too much or too little of either one and you're in trouble. Too much food, spiritual obesity. Too much exercise? Spiritual anemia. Feed the person, just as Jesus did in a Mark 4 passage, and then send them out in real life to use what you've taught them. And in the process of using what they have learned of exercising, they create a greater hunger for food. See, that's why most people come to church and it's a bad scene. They don't have any sense of hunger. Here we are again. Another hour. See, they spend most of their time looking at their watch. Very creative moves. (laughs) Particularly when they start going like this. I asked a pastor some time ago before a morning worship service, how long do you want me to speak? He said, Hendricks, you can speak as long as you want, but they leave at 12. (laughs) Now, there's one key to this. One key to this, don't forget it. If you are going to teach and train by problems, you are going to need to know what to get excited about. And most of us are excited about the wrong thing. We are excited about what we're doing rather than about what our disciples are doing. Disciple makers get excited about what their disciples are doing. I taught a class for medical men. I taught them basic principles of how to study the Bible for oneself. And by the way, Some of you have been asking me a good many questions in this area. My judgment, the first thing I do, crack out of the bag after I lead a person to Jesus Christ, is to get him involved in learning how to study the Bible for himself. And you will save yourself years of wasted time. You get the guy off the ground right at the outset. Now I got a group of medical doctors together. And we used to study just like you would study this passage I assigned or your session this morning. We'd come together and they'd share and man, we'd go way beyond the hour and I'd say, well, we're going to have to shut it down. No, oh, no, no, no. Come on, that's all, you know. Oh, mm. Finally, we'd crank the thing to a halt by my telling them, look, the preachers' union will get after me. I'm taking off. You can do what you want. But invariably, you know, some doctor comes up afterwards and says, hey, look at this, Hendricks. Let me show you what I saw in that passage. I'll bet you haven't seen that. <laughs> And I wouldn't tell him I had. You never saw a seminary professor get as excited as I do. I froth at the mouth and fairly need to be led away. <laughs> I go right through that roof. I say, good night, doc. You mean to tell me you saw that? Yeah, that's right. And it's, man, I have, I have seminary students I haven't seen that. Well, yeah, you yeah. <laughs> know. Let me show you some more. <laughs> One of these doctors goes to our church, went to our church. I met his wife one day in a parking lot. She said, what in the world are you doing to my husband? I said, why? What's the matter? She said, I've got to set the alarm clock to tell this guy what time to go to bed at night. <laughs> Which is a slightly different wrinkle. The third way. Jesus discipled his men by love. By love. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. What's the basis? As I have loved you. John 17, 24. Our Lord's great high priestly prayer. I desire that they may be with me where I am. And that they may behold thy glory. Think of it. When Jesus prayed on earth. He prayed that his disciples would spend all eternity with him. Beholding his glory. Mark 10.45 I came not to be ministered unto but to minister. And to give my light. For years I've asked, why did men follow Jesus? What was the magnetism of his life? I'll tell you, he loved them. And a lover is a leader. I have a dear brother in Jesus Christ deeply into this organization. I have many of them. I could multiply the illustration, but I think of this guy because I've had so much more personal exposure to him And I'm honest, in all of my years in Christian experience, I have never found a lover like this guy. I really think I found a guy who would die for me if the occasion demanded. You see, of the early church, they said, behold how they love one another. Sometime go to a library, get out some of the extant literature during that period of time written by the pagans and over and over and over until it almost becomes monotonous. The pagans are saying, good night, how these Christians relate to each other. And ask yourself, is that true in your church? Is that true in your little fellowship of navigators? Deeply concerned about the process of discipling? I was having extreme problems with my back a few years ago. Boy, I I missed a Bible conference a whole week. I can get out of bed and believe me, when I miss a Bible conference, I am set nigh unto death and I never shared it with a whole lot of people but I taught a wives class and one night long about November this group of four four girls came up and said Prof you're feeling better aren't you I said yeah I really am how did you know they said we have banded together to pray for you every single day since the semester began Three of them are nurses. And they said we could somehow pick up the vibes that you were in pain. See, that's love. And Jesus Christ conveyed that love to his disciples just as you and I have to convey it to our disciple in terms that they can understand. You know one of my favorite questions of a mother who's got problems with her kids? In order to jar her loose, I will ask her, Do you love your boy? Well, you know, that's a ridiculous question to ask a mother, and they come right up out of the chair. The most passive of them. <laughs> I told her I love my boy. Don't think I came up here to be asked a stupid question like that, do you? I say, Well, that's wonderful to know. How does he know? Well, I wash his clothes and iron them and get all of his meals and clean his room. How old is your boy? Three. (laughs) Boy, I'll bet that really comes on loud and clear. You know one of the common complaints I get by women against their husbands? I say, does your husband ever take you out? Oh, yeah. But I wish he wouldn't. Why? He's not there. He's doing what Leroy was talking about the first day? In that series, duty. I'm supposed to take my wife. out. come on, wife, let's go. Come on, hurry up. we're not have a lot of time to horse around. <laughs> and he's sitting across the table, but you know what's lacking? Presence. <laughs> it's Like people who come to seminars I conduct, you know, and... The family, and they get all shook up. That's right, brother. Thank you for reminding me of that. I should play with my boy more. So they go home and say, hey, son, come on. Let's hurry up. We're going to play ball. (laughs) Come on. Hendrick says I'm supposed to play ball with you. You know, 101 places, he'd rather be than that. You'd be just amazed at how perceptive your disciples are as to whether you really, honest to God, love them. Or whether it's cranking it out. And let's let's be realistic. Let's not get so idealistic. When about the sixth one comes in, you know, after you've been at this all day, it's not really so easy. Especially when you're functioning in the flesh. Or especially when your flesh is weary. I think there are some times when I have appreciated the honesty of a person who said to me You know, I want to meet with you so badly I can taste it. But frankly, I am so wiped out, I'm not sure I could stay awake while you talk to me. Could we get together in another time? Man, I want to spend time with you. Because you cannot put a front on in the realm of love. Now, you can do all kinds of favors and superficial external stuff, but that won't make it. But think of the time that Jesus spent with his disciples. The fact that he gave himself the greatest contribution you can ever give to an individual. The fact that he prayed for them. That he affirmed them. Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Peter. Flesh and blood never gave you that message. But he also rebuked them. Because right after that he whips around and says, get thee behind me, Satan. You savor not the things that are God's, but the things that are man. You see, he loved his disciples enough to rebuke them. When's the last time you rebuke somebody? I mean, in the spirit. <sighs> Next point. <laughs> Fourth way that Jesus trained his disciples. Is by faith. Training involves trusting. What's the secret of making disciples? I'll tell you. It's developing an incurable confidence in the Spirit's ability to change a person. And the greatest sin in the evangelical community is the sin of unbelief. We can trust God for our eternal salvation, but we can't trust Him for the next 24 hours with our disciples. That's why you need to study your disciples to find where they are, what they need. One of the brethren in the group at the staff conference was asking me, Howie, what in your judgment is the greatest weakness in disciple-making you see? I said... The greatest weakness I see is that we're bolting the food. We're dumping the track, We're failing to get the cookies on the lower shelf. The Lord said, feed my sheep, not my giraffes. And a lot of you people have spiritual babes. You feed a babe with a bottle, not a fire hose. <laughs> But if you are going to minister and develop faith you are going to have to communicate your confidence in the Lord working in their life. Let's suppose that I were to ask you privately how do you think I spend the bulk of my time in counseling with seminary students? Let me give you just a little background. All of these students are college and university graduates. All of them have a B average or above. All of them come highly recommended by the evangelical community in which they have ministered. All of them have shown evidence of spiritual gift, have usually led people to Christ, sometimes many of them. Just read a report of a kid who led 37 people to Jesus Christ in the first six months he was into faith. and several of them have applied to the seminary for entrance. If I were to ask you, what do you think is the number one problem in these guys? What would you say? It's the same problem you got. the same one our dear brother shared with us tonight so effectively. Inferiority feelings. I had a guy show up in my office some time ago. He said, Prof, I'm going to check it to you. I said, you what? He said, I'm planning to quit. I said, you got to be kidding. He said, no, I've never been more truthful. I said, you mean you're going to leave? Right. Why? He said, I don't think I have it for the ministry. And I had the hardest time to keep from roaring in his face. I thought my shattered nerves, I better not go to the rest of the student body and tell them this guy doesn't have it. They'll all be headed for the registrar's office to resign. This kid's a graduate of an Ivy League school. This kid has 168 IQ. This kid had written on his reference form by a professor at this university, I have been teaching for 36 years and I have never found a student in his leg. I am sorry to say that he's going to waste his life in the ministry. Signed his name across the reference. I said, uh, tell me about your family. I said, that's a bad scene. Well, I said, for example, he said, uh, my father never once in my life complimented me about anything. If I came home, Prof, with a 98, he'd say, well, where are the other two points? His favorite name for me was Dummy. You ever spend 18 years, the most 18 significant significant years of your life, having somebody call you dummy? After a while, you begin to believe it. And that's why I'm so jealous about you. Because if some of you dear people go back to the ministries to which God has called you, and you begin to see your disciples in terms of what God is able to do in their life, you are going to transform your ministry all out of recognition. There are going to be some of you here that are going to lead people to Jesus Christ who are going to become strategic leaders in the body of Christ in the next generation. And you know why? Because somehow God will give you faith to believe. I think one of our problems is that many times we look at our disciples and, you know, we take a reading and say, well, you know, I don't know what God could do with him. You know, he's not much of a public speaker and this one, you know, he has a hard time even relating to people and this one over here, he's got such a short fuse and this one here has got such a trashed up marriage. Man, we'll never get that baby back together. And all the time, you're manifesting your unbelief. Because God wants to move into the life of that individual with whatever limitations, whatever problems, whatever gifts, whatever assets and use them as a sharp instrument in his hands. You want to pray for something? It's very rare. You won't see very much of it. Ask God to give you discernment. It's the product of the Spirit to see beyond where the person is right now to where he may become by the grace of God. Let's pray.